It's a pleasure this morning and a privilege to welcome Dr. Scott Red Jr. to the pulpit this morning. Uh, when I came about nine months ago, he was actually here giving a testimony on Sunday morning and was one of the first ones to come up and welcome me. So it's a privilege to get to welcome Scott to open God's Word for us this morning. Scott is no stranger to MPC. He is the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary's campus here in Washington, D.C. He is a friend, he is a brother in Christ, and he's a fellow laborer for the kingdom of God, and you should listen to him this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Scott, for his commitment to serve you in seminary training for pastors and workers and marketplace servants. Father, we pray that you would free him to speak boldly and truthfully and with your grace to your people this morning, speaking your words that you have given him. Father, open our hearts and our minds that we might hear you through your spoken word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, God. Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. I bring greetings from the leadership of Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, from the staff and faculty of the Washington campus, as well as the institution and our new chancellor, uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who was just announced uh, in recent weeks. But here's something you won't hear a lot. I just returned from Istanbul, Turkey last week, uh, where I was meeting with uh, church leaders in North Africa, Egypt, and the Middle East, uh, many of whom are refugees in Turkey, though are not from Turkey themselves. Uh, And as a matter of fact, one of the groups of refugees with whom we were meeting and talking about how to train young pastors up in their churches, one of these groups came from the modern-day town of Nikia, which is the ancient town of Nicaea. So that gives me opportunity to do something I've always wanted to do and say that I bring greetings from the saints in Nicaea. (laughs) I can mark that off on the bucket list. It's been done. I am blessed to be with you this morning. Have you um, ever heard this saying? The saying goes like this, wherever you go, there you are. I'm not sure exactly where it came from. I tried researching it. I know that there's a rumor that Sir Edmund Hillary said that when asked what he thought when he summited Mount Everest. Wherever you go, there you are. I think the obvious meaning is this, that wherever you go, of course, you're still the same person, whether you're in McLean, Virginia, or Washington, D.C., or Istanbul, Turkey, or the summit of Mount Everest. You're still you, and so wherever you go, there you are. But as I was in Turkey, I kept bouncing around in my head, and I was thinking about this sermon, and I kept noticing something else, another way in which that saying is true. You see, it's true that wherever you go, there you are, because wherever you go, you see yourself in the people around you. Even in Turkey, I saw a diversity of people, a diversity of complexions, of languages, of religions, of aesthetic tastes, of styles of dress. And yet I also noticed there's this alarming similarity between what I saw there and what I see in my own life. And around town in Washington, D.C. There's the same love of family structures. There's the same need for order, the same desire for work, and the same enjoyment of rest, of leisure, and relationship. 
See, there are these basic similarities in human civilization that you find no matter where you go. And you identify with them. And you realize that wherever you go, in a way, there you are. So why is this? Why is there this similarity in human society, this general desire for these features of life, like work and rest? Well, that's what... Genesis 1 is really tackling. That's the issue that we run into in the passage that we read today. You see, humans have this general desire, this general need for work and rest because, as we just read, it's built into us. It's hardwired into us from creation. Back when God conferred something on humanity, he imputed on humanity something that he did not confer on any other part of his wonderful and beautiful creation. And that is that he made us all in his image. And being made in the image of God, we are then called by him to work and to rest, just like our God works and rests. Well, let's start at the beginning of Genesis 1. The part of the book that we didn't read this morning, uh, dealing with the problem of creation. Because God really does approach the problem of creation as a problem. It's a problem to be solved. Or rather, it's a two-part problem with two solutions. The first problem is this. It's formless. It's chaotic. It is shapeless. And the second problem is that it's void. It's empty. It's vacuum. It is lacking in shape, and it's lacking in substance. And so he goes about the work of shaping it and making it, filling it with substance. If you notice, uh, this twofold kind of creation that's going on, the shaping and the making, is reflected in the sequence of the days in which he makes creation. In the first three days, he shapes, and in the second three days, he makes. He shapes the light, distinguishing it from the darkness. But then he goes about the work of the waters, and he shapes the waters, separating the upper waters from the lower waters. But then he's not done. He then shapes the land, distinguishing it out from the waters around it. The shaping work is then done on day three. So he starts with the making work. On day four, he goes back to the light, and he makes the lights. He fills the light with the great light in the day to rule it, and the lesser light in the night, the moon. And then he goes back to those waters that he shaped on day two, and he makes the birds, the fish, of the, the fish of the sky, as it were, and the fish of the waters below. And then on day six, he goes back to that land which he had shaped on day four, and he fills it with animals. And finally, the ultimate part of his creation, humans, you and me, made in the image of God. Now notice, he doesn't stop there. He does this unique thing. He makes us in his image, and then he tells us to continue as his images, doing the work that he has done. You see, he sends Adam out and Eve to make little images of God and fill the earth with them, and to shape the earth, subduing it into the service of those images. And we should be careful to note that this mandate to shape And to make the world is part of God's creation, which he calls in our passage very good. It's good. It's not a result of the fall that you have to work. That is a part of your good creation. It's a part of who God made you to be. It's his perfect and good purpose for us all. And we should note, by the way, that he sends them out to fill the earth and subdue it, not just the garden, 
See, the garden was never the beginning of the plan in the first place. There was always this hope to extend the garden over the face of the whole earth. So work doesn't come out of the fall, but the fall does affect the way we go about our work. It hinders our work. It frustrates us. Look at the curse that Adam experiences. The work that he's supposed to do out in the field is now frustrating. The nature is going to resist him. It's going to be by the sweat of his brow, says the Lord. And Eve's role in in filling the earth through childbirth is now going to be made painful and suffering, where it was once playful and joy, joyful. Now it's going to be made difficult. We even today uh, confirm that when we call it labor. You see, the fall results in frustration. It frustrates our calling to work, but God in his grace does not rescind that mandate. The mandate is still in effect for Adam and Eve, for Cain and Abel, for Seth, and for us today. However, we do see another effect of the fall in the way we go about our work, and it doesn't show up until we get to the story of Babel. This is sometime after the fall of humanity, after the flood, and human civilization is now gathered in what's called the Valley of Shinar, which is Mesopotamia, or southern Iraq, for our modern-day sensibilities. And they go about the business of building this city, this civilization. But they don't do it just because they want to have human society and enjoy human relationship. They tell us exactly why they want to do it. They do it in order to make a name for themselves. You see, now that sin has been introduced into the world, there is this temptation amongst humans to turn work into a means of idolatry, a means of bringing glory perhaps to ourselves and not to the God in whose image we've been made. And that, of course, is exactly what idolatry is. It's the definition of idolatry, to lift up something created like the work week and to turn it into the source of glory or the object of glory, replacing the creator with the creation, and it is ultimately unrighteous and destructive. So work can become an idol, but how does that happen? Well, let's, let's go back for a bit. Let's go back to this passage we read this morning. Notice that God tells us something about work. As a matter of fact, the first thing he tells us about work is that we are to regularly stop doing it. All right? We are to regularly rest. As a matter of fact, we're made in the image of this shaping, making, and resting God, and he calls us to live a life out of that image. He says that it's fully humanizing for us to live lives that are marked by both work and rest, because work and rest together emanate, they spring out of his character. We do it because he does it, and he made us in his image. Now, we all understand that work and rest go together. Though I would suspect, this is just a suspicion, that we tend to emphasize one over the other, either work over rest or rest over work, forgetting that we're called to pursue them both as one. They're two sides of the same coin. You see, we take this good created thing, this structure of the work week week followed by rest, and we turn it into an idol. I think we often forget that work earns rest, and rest earns rest work. Rest without work is what we call laziness. It's sloth, right? Isn't that exactly what laziness is? It is unearned rest. Unworked for rest, which by itself is ultimately meaningless and unsatisfying for those made in the image of God. 
But the opposite is true as well. Rest earns work. Rest leads back to the work that can now be done well because we have taken a moment to rest, to be rejuvenated. Work without rest is what we might call workaholism. And that is what it is. It's unearned work. It's unrested for work, which by itself is ultimately meaningless and unsatisfying to those made in the image of God. Now, I suspect that most people in this area of Washington, D.C., can see the obvious problem with sloth. That's a pretty obvious sin. It might be a little bit harder to see the obvious problem with workaholism. Of course, we've been taught by television shows and movies and retreats and sermons like this one that work and rest go together. And I think that we would all acknowledge that workaholism is a kind of besetting sin for us in urban metropolitan environments that are high achieving. But I also suspect that we think it's a bit of an honorable sin. You know what I mean by that? It might be a sin that we all too happily and readily confess, our workaholism. We, say, we admit that we need to spend more time with family, that we need to rest, we need to find more time for relationship outside of work and enjoying God's glory and worshiping Him. But there's actually very little effort to change our behavior in this regard. In other words, we confess it outwardly, but I think few of us grip the floor late at night on our knees in repentance for our workaholism. And I think that's exactly why Genesis 1 takes a moment, or Genesis 2 rather, takes a moment to highlight how the Lord rested. Moses seems to be saying here, how dare you? How dare you think you don't need to rest when the Lord creator God made time for rest? And you're made in his image. Yes, there are times when we have to live without rest. There are times when, because of various external circumstances, we are forced to live lives of no rest. And yet, these should only be seasons. And not seasons that we run after. Not seasons that we desire, but rather seasons that we seek to avoid. You see, if your life is marked by no rest, I would suggest to you that you are either being oppressed or you are being foolish, and you're quite possibly being unfaithful. It's a little-known fact of Old Testament theology that in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Chronicles, the reason given for the exile is that the people did not give the land its rest. And so while the people were in exile for 70 years, the land got its due rest. So we can make an idol out of work. We can make an idol out of rest as well. As I mentioned, I suspect that there is a probably a sociological tendency towards workaholism in this area. That's a, that's a knowledgeable guess. Just like any other vibrant metropolitan environment. But I think that there is also an age element to these temptations. I think that sloth, laziness, is probably a temptation that is felt most by the young have work out ahead of you. You haven't yet had to pay your own way or or support a family. Your career is something that's going to happen in the future and it can be daunting and intimidating and because of that you suffer the temptation of desiring a life of leisure unburdened by the struggle of rest. 
So I think that laziness can be a temptation of the young, but I also think it can be a temptation of those on the other side of the age spectrum, can't it? Those who have retired from their careers and now they feel that they have earned a life of unadulterated 24-7 rest. As a matter of fact, I think it's an idolatry of our culture that we have encoded in our tax law and our labor policies that at age 65, you stop being fully human and don't have to go about the work of, re- uh, the work of work, as it were. Now, I know that responsibilities change as we grow older, and your means of income will probably not be your day-to-day work. But that does not mean that we lose our call to form and fill the earth, to shape and to make the earth in a variety of ways, through relationships, through that wellspring of experience that you have accrued over the course of your life, through the knowledge that you have that you can use to serve the church and family and your community. That at no point in our lives do we stop being fully human. So to replace God's proper call on us to both work and rest is to make an idol out of one or the other. Rest idolatry is sloth. Work idolatry is workaholism. And both are ultimately meaningless and destructive for those who are made in the image of God. Okay, so the fall has damaged our effect or our attempts at work and rest both through frustration and through the reality of idolatry. But God is gracious not to rescind his mandate. But rather, he continues to encourage us to live out his call to be makers and shapers. After all, that's what the book of Proverbs is about, how to make and shape well and wisely. And that brings us to Paul's letter to the Colossians, the first chapter of which we read during our assurance of pardon today, which speaks directly towards this issue of our role as those who are made in the image of God, serving through faith the one who is the perfect embodiment of that image, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus gives expression to the image of God so well, says Paul, that we might even suspect that we were made in God's image just to point us to how he was going to do it right. That we were made in his his image so that we could anticipate how Jesus would come and embody that image in the most perfect, excellent, and worthy manner. And then Paul says, you get to come into him through faith. You get to be a part of that perfect embodiment of the image of God by your faith in Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful gift that is. So let me close here with three reasons. Three reasons why we work. The first is one that we've already mentioned at large extent, and that's this. We work because as part of God's creation, as part of God's image, His character must be lived out through us, finding expression in His image in us. He desired to see the world be a place of shaping and making, of form and substance, and so He has given that desire to us. When you do your work, you are living out God's call on you as his image bearer. Secondly, we work because we are called to love our neighbors. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Good Samaritan is answering the question that Jesus has been asked. Who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. He tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who 
comes and shows love and care for the wounded man who is left on the side of the road. Now notice what the Good Samaritan does. He picks up the man, he takes him to an inn, and he pays for his rehabilitation. The Good Samaritan himself is a businessman. He can't do it on his own, but he has to rely on those around him. So I would submit to you that there is more than one loving neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Rather, there is an innkeeper who can be trusted with the money to care for the wounded man. But not only that, let's go back. The inn has to be safe and secure, doesn't it? It has to be built well. There are men who know how to work with clay and straw and wood structures to build an inn that can be used for the caring of wounded men left on the side of the road. But we don't just stop there. The man has to be clothed. So how about the clothier or the farmer or the shepherd who cared for the food and made it available to the Samaritan so that he might heal and rehabilitate the wounded man? Or how about the miner who minted the gold that was used in the coins? Or how about the minter who helps keep that going currency and the economy stable so that the innkeeper can trust the gold that the Samaritan gives him? You see, there's more than just one loving neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we show our love for our neighbor when we do work well. So first, we work because it is God's character emanating out of us, made in his image. Secondly, we work because we are called to love our neighbors, and we do that well when we work well. Thirdly, we work because it advances the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the first century, after Jesus sent out his apostles, the the gospel spread around the known world like wildfire spread like wildfire. We know that Paul was planning to go to Spain, which was really the horizon of the known world at that time. And everyone basically recognizes that this was true for several reasons. One reason was this, the Holy Spirit. That was the main reason, but he was working through something else. And that was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace that the Roman Empire had ensured around the known world so that Paul and Barnabas and others could walk freely and safely along the countryside, meeting in synagogues, telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it was through this intricate highway system that the Roman Empire had put together so they could travel not only safely, but quickly. And as a result, the gospel spread like wildfire, reaching Gentile ears of whom we are the descendants. Now, when I was in Turkey, I, I realized that the same is true today Imagine this. Last Saturday, I traveled from Nicaea to Constantinople in two hours. You can imagine the early church. Couldn't even fathom that kind of distance or travel. And as I sat on this ferry going across the Sea of Marmara at record speed when there was no wind for our sails, I looked and I saw that ferry captain using the skills of nautical science that he had studied that I will never know so that he could get me back to the harbor in Istanbul in time to catch my plane to fly to Washington, D.C. Let's not even talk about that. It is amazing how work that is done efficaciously, honestly, and with excellence serves the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is as common today and as present today as it was in the first century. We do this work because it serves the kingdom advancement of Jesus Christ. 
We are made in the image of God. And that doctrine cannot exist outside of the doctrine of Christ, says Paul, because Paul makes clear when he describes us as redeemed images of God brought into the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. We can't separate our doctrine of work and rest from the doctrine of the gospel because we show Christ's lordship in the way in which we pursue our call as redeemed images of God, where we live and where we work and where we play. That means that the accountant serves out her gospel call when she does her work well, keeping the books with excellence and honesty. That means that the police officer is responding to the gospel call on his life when he brings order and safety to a place where there would otherwise be chaos and crime, pushing back the effects of the fall, as it were. It means that the military officer works out his gospel calling in his life when he does his military duty with honesty, integrity, and excellence. It also means that the stay-at-home mother is pursuing her gospel calling as an image of God. And she raises up little images of God and trains them in the way that they will go in the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It means that the teacher pursues her gospel calling when she orders ideas and facts in minds that are otherwise formless and void, shaping and making the realm of ideas. See, just as the Jesus is our creator, Lord, made in his image, made in the image of God, the perfect image, so are we now redeemed in him, and we are redeemed images of God. It's that image that Paul calls new creation within the Christian, the one who is saved by faith. And that's why it's a great error for us to separate this doctrine of work from the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no social gospel without redemptive gospel. There's no power of positive thinking without the positive thinking based in the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this life has no meaning, much less happiness, much less hope for happiness without the promises that are offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we talk about his kingdom advancing over the face of the earth, as he called Adam and Eve to do, that advancement must be aligned with and coincide with the proclamation of the good news of the king. Because where the king is, there the kingdom is also. And where the image is, so is God shaping and making the world to his good purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you uh, this message, this doctrine of the word, doctrine of work and life. Dear Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us in the ways that we have not lived up to this call which you have given us. Dear Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and that your grace would flow over us like oceans as we think about how to live this doctrine anew in the life that we live outside of church during the rest of the week. I pray, Lord, that the knowledge of the perfect image of God in Jesus Christ would renew our thinking about everything else that we do, transforming us to his lordship, transforming us, Lord, to serving his kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.